This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club. Each month, Charcoal selects a first edition monograph that's a must-have for every photo book collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist with a print and a note card from the guest curator, not to mention free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. If you already have the book, you can simply swap it out for another one in their bookshop. Some of my favorite books in the past few months have been Half Story, Half Life by Raymond Meeks and Wood River Blue Pool by Joanne Walters. Many of the books of the month are now out of print and really expensive, but I have a copy thanks to the book club. Just one of the many reasons that I love being a member of Charcoal. Try it for yourself. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. It seems to me like the more dramatic the subject matter a photographer takes on, the more difficult their job becomes. When what's in front of the camera has so much visual appeal already, how do you make pictures that are more interesting than the event? Jeff Burton is my guest today, and his pictures are a great example of how brilliantly someone has dealt with this problem. His work, much of which was made on gay adult film sets in L.A., rarely just documents what's in front of him, but rather uses that material to construct his own personal mysterious world that's more suggestive than explicit. Burton was born in Anaheim, California and grew up in Texas where he studied at the Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. He then pursued his MFA at the California Institute of the Arts as a painter, but the climate of the school at the time was much more steeped in conceptual practices that didn't jibe with what he was most interested in. Justifying yourself constantly, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a very good place to live. Yeah. You know, part of part of what I liked about and what I was kind of saying about not being in sync with the times that there was that I found joy making paintings. Mm-hmm. And uh, they really sort of stamped the joy out mm-hmm. by making you feel like you had to justify everything you did. The having fun was kind of like a guilt. Right. I almost feel like the essence of any art making really has to do with a kind of playfulness in, in the process. Well, I think to, I mean, I'm going to sound pretty romantic and that's okay, I guess, but doing the thing, something that you love Mm -hmm. has got to be a pretty good place to start. Right. What kind of paintings were you making? I'm curious. And like, what were you into at the time? Well, when I was a teenager, I used to draw a lot Mm -hmm. and I used to draw my favorite rock stars and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And I got kind of good at it. Uh-huh. And uh I felt like like I would sit alone in my room and and work on them for hours and when I started getting the likeness down and it was looking great, I got a real kick out of that. And I I kind of made a deal with the universe one day and I was like, I think I have a gift. And I will, if you'll keep giving it to me, <laughs> I'm going to mm-hmm. sound like this is where the TCU, the Texas Christian University might come in, mm-hmm. but it could have been um, Satan, who knows. But um, I made a deal that I would follow my gift as far as I could take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've kind of kept, tried to keep to that. I haven't always succeeded, but. Your visual sensibility is is so interesting and curious that I'm interested in like, what other painting or even like other, you know, visual arts was like informing you at that time? Well, I was looking at a lot of abstract expressionism Mm -hmm. and probably the second generation too, where the, the center was empty in the paintings and there was a lot going on on the edges. Mm -hmm. For some reason that intrigued me that, that there was this contemplative space in the middle where Mm -hmm. there was kind of nothing. And then all these references about something going on beyond the frame. Mm Mm-hmm. 
a lot of this, this that I'm telling you has come to me having thought about it in retrospect mm-hmm. and thinking about how my images that I take as a photographer ended up looking like they look, like what could have influenced me. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so conscious at the time that I was like, I'm going to make photographs that look like these paintings. That was not part of the, the deal. Mm-hmm. It was a much more organic process. Right. How the picture started to look like that, where the, there's kind of an empty center mm-hmm. with a lot of details going on on the front edges. So how did the pictures start in the first place, the photographs? I took pictures in college, but I felt like it was easy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kept stayed with the painting because I felt like that's where the real hard work was. Mm-hmm. And then when I got out of school, I was broke and owed a lot of money like students do. And I answered an ad for to work in... Uh, adult films mm-hmm. it was back when the magazines existed uh-huh. and I was looking for work and uh, pretty desperate but I don't say that in that I thought it was beneath me I say that in that I was brave enough I was so hungry that I was brave enough to go on that interview mm-hmm. because I was kind of I was a little afraid that I couldn't handle it what do you think you could handle uh, well it's perceived that that world is dark and mm-hmm. maybe pretty heavy and mm-hmm. I'm a pretty shy person and not certainly not an exhibitionist. So I was intimidated by it mm-hmm. that it would be full of very um, self-assured wacky types that might intimidate the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and what did it end up being? It ended up being a blast. Yeah. Yeah. We became like a family, the group on the set. There were like five of us that would make films. What kind of porn was it? I started in gay porn. Uh-huh. And it was a company called Catalina. Okay. Which to me was like the big time. It was like going to MGM or Paramount or something. Okay. And uh, big stars there. And I was so excited when I went on the interview. And, and I was like, you know, who's this for? And they said Catalina Video. And I was like, you know, oh, my God. Uh-huh. Um, Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna zone out sometimes talking about this because memories flood yeah, yeah. through like the the actual interview in the beginning. Um, I left a note with my roommate that said I've gone to an interview. This is the address if I don't come back. <laughs> 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 Which is probably wishful thinking on my part, you know. Uh-huh. The dark side of me was like, oh, I'm gonna go into white slavery or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so. You go for that interview and you start working there. What were you doing there? Um, well, it said still photographer needed. So this is pre-internet. We're talking 1989. Okay. So VHS, we shot on three-quarter inch tape where uh-huh. you slide the tape in and push the top down. Uh-huh. And uh, they still needed a lot of imagery print mm-hmm. to advertise the films. That's back when you would go into the video store and there would be a separate room right. for the adult. And, right, right. You know, VHS. And you just kind of had free reign. It was just like take pictures. and. Well, that was the brilliant thing about it, I think, for me, was that I was a team player. And I would interject and offer suggestions and help direct when necessary. But no one had a monitor on me. So I could shoot whatever I wanted. Uh-huh. Um, and that was a real blessing because I, I was part of the team, but I had a private capturing device. Right that could capture whatever I wanted to do. And it took a while before the work that you've seen 
that you know of as like artworks from that setting. Um, when I first started, I was just learning how to do the job mm-hmm. and it was a lot of pressure. I mean, the first scene that I shot was in Big Bear. It's like an hour north of here in the mountains mm-hmm. and people ski there and it was like a cabin set movie. Okay. And oh, wow. I mean, the guy who picked me up my first shoot was clearly on drugs uh-huh. to give me the right. He was the cook. Uh-huh. That was his job. So I was kind of scared in general, but I was like, oh man, here we go. We're, we're, we're off and running in Boogie Nights. Uh-huh. This is pre-Boogie Nights, but um, I got there and um, the guys were having trouble getting excited and into each other. So they cleared the set. I couldn't even be in there for the first scene. And then when the, the guy was done filming, he, he got to me and said, okay, it's your turn. Get what you need. I didn't know what I needed because I didn't know the job. Right. So I had to go in and talk to these guys I'd never met and be like, what did you guys just do? Knowing that it was sex, but I didn't know the details uh-huh. and have to coax out of them to repeat what they did. And then I would shoot it hoping it was what they, the company wanted for me. Right. So it was like boot camp being hmm. broken in pretty, pretty tough. Right. <laughs> so I know this work from the books you did with Twin Palms. But what was the original intention of those pictures? What were they being used for? Well, the the pictures in the books yeah. are very different than the body of work that I did for the companies. Okay. Like, distinctly different. Okay, so I haven't even seen any of, the, any of those. No, and I, I can show you. I have, like, the box cover pictures and stuff. I'd love to see that, I kept that, yeah. an archive of that. And it's kind of interesting because now that I'm shooting, the like, portraits of actors and writers or whoever the assignment is I have I am trained to shoot first degree portraiture but that wasn't what was exciting me when I was making the quote-unquote artwork mm-hmm. what excited me was when I would take a picture and you couldn't tell what the function was mm-hmm. so I can understand you asking like what were those used for right because there's kind of no use for them mm-hmm. because you look at them and you're like I don't know what this picture is Mm-hmm. And that was really exciting to me to disrupt the narrative on set. Mm-hmm. This is this is such a it's all really basic and easy, but it's hard to, to describe it. Mm-hmm. All the different sort of facets of how I shot because it's a little schizophrenic. I'm shooting really explicit sex to make it as hot as possible for mm-hmm. the for the client. Yeah, but then every now and then I zone out on that everyone in the scene is brown and that like. I'm shooting African-American scene mm-hmm. and the carpet's brown and the drapes are brown. And I'm like, wow, this is sort of genius. Like I could, I could, this couldn't have been art directed any better mm-hmm. by accident. So I'm starting to notice all these details that are completely missed by everybody shooting because they're so busy just doing their job. Right. But like I said, back to having like not having a monitor on me, I was free to, fantasize and have an imagination outside the the script Mm -hmm. so how did the pictures that ended up in those books come to be well after i learned the job Mm -hmm. and they liked me and they liked what i was doing they allowed me to edit my own work so in the beginning i had to shoot for them and then just hand the film over Uh so they, they would like it was almost like taking your baby away before you get to be with it. Uh-huh. Like I would shoot it and they would just take it. Right. And then once they were like, Hey, you're doing a really good job. Are you cool with processing the film yourself and editing it? 
And I was like, yeah, I am. I prefer, yeah. <laughs> so preference. Then I could, um, I could divert from the script and shoot whatever I wanted. So it was, it'd be like a roll of all this really like, this is porn. And mm-hmm. suddenly there'd be a picture that didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So did you start putting those aside? Did you know? Yeah. What, yeah. yeah. As I edited, I'd be, it was so much fun to get the film back in those days. I had a, a little light box that was sort of vertical mm-hmm. and I would start, you know, lining up the pictures, the, the slides when I got home with all the stuff and it'd be like, you know, a sequential thing of a fucking or sucking or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And then there'd be this odd picture that I had taken for myself in the mix and I would get so excited and pull it aside and set it in a different slide page. Yeah. Um, and I guess, I mean, I really was just doing it for me in the beginning. I didn't have any designs to like, this is my project. I'm going to make art out of it. Right. I was just turned on by that, that difference. And like, like I've never seen a picture that looked like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, some, I showed it to somebody and they, they were doing a, a show to raise money for AMFAR for AIDS. Okay. HIV um, benefit. And somebody saw it who really liked it, bought it, and he had a little pop-up gallery and wanted to show some of the pictures. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how the art showing of the work happened. Mm-hmm. And then it led to someone from New York seeing it, and he was about to open a gallery on Broadway. Hmm. And uh, Who was that? Casey Kaplan. And he's been my uh, primary gallery ever since. Interesting. And is that what led to you meeting Jack Woody and doing the books? Yeah, with I'm curious, book? now that you ask how all that happened, I was very fortunate and blessed that as I was making this work was when photography had kind of a boom. Mm-hmm. And Los Angeles also had an art. Everyone started to look at toward Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And that was like mid-90s. So, you know, when people say the timing is everything, mm-hmm. it really was in my case. Um, so there was quite a flurry of, of interest. And um, I, I used to joke that, I, that it was my like world tour because mm. I had a period where I showed in Tokyo, in London, in Italy. I mean, it was really exciting. Uh-huh. But it's funny, um, as wonderful as that is, mm-hmm. I'm clearly more a voyeur at heart than I am an exhibitionist. Right. And that would, it was really unnerving to me too. I mean, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have the work that you believe in that you're trying to make accepted and appreciated. But if you're not comfortable with eyes on you, mm-hmm. like think about it this way. It's like, um, if someone's looking over a voyeur's shoulder, it, it just kills everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That sensibility it translates into the actual showing of the work too. Like that was always like a difficult thing or an uncomfortable thing. I mean, I feel like there, there are contradictions in everything and yeah. that's when things get exciting too. When things are troublesome. Yeah. That's when a lot of good stuff happens. But, um, being a gay man in Texas, not the easiest thing in the seventies being mm-hmm. a gay kid then. Um, I don't know how other people have experienced this, but some, some kids knew I was gay before I was uh-huh. before I knew I was. And they, they sense it, and you get picked on. Mm-hmm. So I had some of that. But fortunately, there were queerer guys than me who got 
who the focus was on more than me. That's mean to say, but you know, we don't really want to be the one who's picked on the most. Um, but uh, it was kind of sad. Um, and at that time, there was such ignorance about even from the your teachers to protect you because even they probably weren't educated enough to feel like, hey, it's not cool to do that. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, I, I think some of the teachers came to me but were afraid to say, hey, I'm gay too. Don't mm-hmm. worry about it. But in retrospect, I remember some teachers saying, hey, I used to be like you mm-hmm. when I was young. Yeah. And everything's going to be okay. I think it was their way of saying, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some benefits to, again, back to the yin and yang of things. Yeah. I became hyper vigilant visually about cues and what things mean and what you could get away with doing and not get away with doing in public. Mm-hmm. And I think that hyper vigilance has been part of my visual vocabulary and the way that I like inspect things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been a benefit to that, to being hyper aware of nuance mm-hmm. because you didn't want to convey in the wrong crowd that you w- weren't like them. Right. So you had to learn to perform a little bit. I mean, I'm mixing up mannerisms with visuals, but there's a connection. They're all intertwined and I completely relate to what you're talking about. I mean, I feel like I did oh, the good. same thing. Yeah. I feel like I had a very similar experience. Yeah. I mean, I can remember being in restaurants and, uh, I mean, for instance, I, I dated a girl. She was an African-American gr- girl. I was 16. She was 18, which was already a little bit unusual that we had the age difference. But um, we came out of a restaurant. No, we were sitting in the car about to go in a restaurant, and two cowboys came out. And, they, and it, the restaurant was called Peppers. Uh-huh. And they said it doesn't mean salt and pepper, which was clever, I suppose. But that that's just the way it was. And I can remember... I got, I was an artist too. So I hung out with some people who weren't conservative Texans. Right. And they would eye us at, at a restaurant. And I got the feeling that if we didn't tone it down or whatever, that we could be in some big trouble. Right. So what was it like coming out for you? When I came out to Cal Arts, I had a, I had a girlfriend again, uh-huh. but I was out with her and that I liked guys and we would actually watch gay porn together uh-huh. and fool around. And that was really liberating for me because the porn, the gay porn that I watched was a very private, typically a private by myself kind of thing. Right. Uh And it was very liberating to share that with a, with a girl. But, um, I was, you know, feeling my way through my sexuality. She turned me on. I liked her a lot, but I, I knew that I wouldn't be able to just stay with her. When, she and I broke up. I met a guy and we became boyfriends and I was at Cal arts between first and second year. And I was going home for Christmas the first time to go home and see my family again in Texas. And I brought, well, I didn't bring him with me. I went out first and I bought him a plane ticket. And so I was, I think maybe I did it so that it would force me to come out to my family. Mm-hmm. So when I went home, I was sitting watching TV with my mom thinking, am I really going to do this? But I had to because he's coming, right? Right. So I told her, I said, hey, I, I got to tell you something. And uh, 
I said, I like guys. I'm, I'm having my boyfriend come out for Christmas. <laughs> Guess who's coming for Christmas? And she's like, oh, wow. She's like, um, I always thought your brother was, but not you. <laughs> <laughs> um, just threw my brother under the bus. <laughs> um, but she's like, I just want you to be happy. So your parents were okay. Well, my it. dad had already yeah. passed away. And I remember you're reminding me stuff that's like, you know, we're talking a long time ago, mm-hmm. 30 years ago. He had Alzheimer's, and when he was passing away, I, I was realizing that I was going to be gay and live as a gay man. And I thought, I think I'm just going to wait until he passes away because he was already losing his capabilities mentally that I thought it was really pointless to try to explain it to him. And, you know, let, let this, this is a major thing that's happening the loss of your dad she's going through a lot my mom like just just wait till that's over how do you feel about that in retrospect you mean not telling him yeah I would have had to do it before I mean Alzheimer's is a very long process so I I wasn't clear on it Mm -hmm. when he was still present no I guess the thing that I was curious about is there something in you that almost wishes you had told him even just for yourself I'm totally okay with how that's gone I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Jeff Burton that we had in his garden in Silver Lake overlooking the Hollywood Hills. To see more of Jeff's work, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You work as a fashion photographer now. Yeah. Fashion, um, I also just editorial? still live mm-hmm. editorial. Um, sometimes it's an assignment that's that's like a writer or a subject, a personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I've shot like Cartier jewel jewelry, which is a whole different ball game. Uh-huh. How did that work come about? Back when I was showing a lot during my world tour. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, this is in what years, by the way? Um, I'm thinking now, like, late 90s. Okay. I got approached by some fashion people to shoot um, campaigns. It was pretty unorthodox. I think it was more adventurous back in the 90s in fashion. And uh, they would just give me a flat fee and send the product. Uh The first was a shoe campaign. And we, like, make it like your work. And... It's funny, you know, it, it was a great learning experience. You know how I said a minute ago that there's just dichotomies of pluses and minuses to everything? Mm-hmm. So the beauty was was the freedom. The, the backside, bad side of that was I knew nothing about the business. Uh-huh. So I got taken to the cleaners in terms of what I was paid as the fee. Okay. <laughs> I mean... I mean, that's a harsh way to say it, but kind of. Okay. Like, I didn't get any usage for the pictures. I didn't, uh, I mean, they basically got them for free. They paid for cost. Uh-huh. 
but I learned so much yeah. and I was doing what I loved to do. And those days I would hire my porn friends who were actors that I knew and we would hang out and, and I, it, w it was like play dress up. Uh -huh. Like here, why don't you guys fool around and wear these shoes? Uh -huh. <laughs> wow. I mean, not a bad day's work. Yeah, really. it sounds like a pretty good time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's worth the discount. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you started. That's how you got into it all. But you and but you're still doing it. I'm still doing it. Um, yeah, I mean, there are times I have a love-hate relationship with it. There are days where I just think I'm the, the luckiest guy ever. Mm -hmm. um, but I think like anything, when it becomes work, there's the downside. Right. Again, the yin and yang, it's like some days it just seems very difficult. Yeah. And then sometimes it's just such a joy to... I mean, I remember talking to my painting teacher from from back in Texas and... I think at first he was sort of disappointed that I had given up painting and become a photographer. And I said, well, his name's Jim Woodson. He's a, he's a great painter. He's actually teaching um, George Bush, George oh, yeah. W. Bush, how to paint. Uh -huh. um, he, I said, well, Jim, I feel like that I'm, uh, I'm working with the same stuff that gave me joy, like visual things. And, and it's still a frame and it's still pushing and pulling like abstraction to me is like when things start to go out of focus uh -huh. and uh playing with spatial relationships there's there's something that i always liked it's called contour continuation at least that's what i call it contour continuation what is that well when you look at an image i remember um the shock of the new i don't know if you know that that film it was during the early 60s i think um there was an artist, I wish I could remember their name, but they said they wanted to make pictures that looked like they happened all at once. Mm -hmm. And these were paintings in their case. But it's when, when s certain elements of, in an image kind of line up, like when, the, like when a house lines up with someone's eyes, the edge of their, the roof, uh, and, okay. the, and everything starts to kind of fit together, like mm -hmm. a cubist kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it can screw up in a good way. It can uh, disrupt foreground, background, and make make things kind of hard to decipher, mm -hmm. like what's in front and what's in back, and where where something ends and where something begins, and what what belongs to what. Um, and it looks like it it looks like something happening all at once in a way. Like you can't separate all the elements out perfectly. It starts to kind of blend and become almost surreal. Um, I try to do that in some of my photographs. I mean, I think that description is very accurate in terms of how I look at your pictures. It's well, like, yeah, like yeah. you can't tell what, what arm comes out of what part of the body, or is it an arm, or right. is it a foot? I find that really exciting when, when things start to feel surreal, because in a way, it made sense to me, because the set life was kind of surreal. There's something very surreal about an environment where sex in front of everyone is, is, is expected. Right. <laughs> It seems like there's a parallel between that feeling you're describing and the feeling in, in your pictures. Well, I felt like I was on to something with the pictures when, when they brought up more questions than answers. Mm -hmm. And it felt like there were different feelings happening. Yeah. Different, like the, what the priority was, was hard to discern. Right. Like, what is this picture for? They had, yeah, they had open-ended qualities. Yeah, what does it mean? Right. Um, and I think, I think part of it dovetailed with 
the different kinds of emotions that would happen on set. Mm-hmm. Um, being turned on, not being turned on, um, feeling like you were it was you were supposed to make it look hot, but it wasn't hot. Mm-hmm. Lots of contradictions. Um, some amoral thoughts. Mm-hmm. Some sweet thoughts. Sometimes it could be a really tender environment and sweet, and people would clearly like each other. And it was a gorgeous, like, Malibu scene with the beach behind and just heaven. Uh-huh. And then sometimes it was really seedy, and the people didn't, they were going through the motions. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a factory of churning out. I mean, that's pretty extreme. Yeah. Like, from a love scene to prostitution, hardcore grind. Mm hmm. I'm curious how working in that kind of environment, how it affected your sexuality or even just your sense of sex. It would go both ways. There were days where I was like, uh, I just want to go home and relax. Yeah. Sex is not on my mind. I've seen enough of that today. But then there would be times where it'd be like, it's my turn. I don't think it really was that different than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, it, 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 I had charged up moments and not so charged up moments and it, it wasn't consistent uh-huh. in that sense to, to where I could really pinpoint this is what it's doing to me. Yeah. But I do remember some times where it was like, it's my turn. Right. You know, I've just been standing, watching this, watching this. I like, would like to feel that myself. Uh, right. So it didn't destroy, it didn't desensitize me. Right. I think that's kind of what I was, what I was getting at, or even just seeing that like a certain kind of sex, that is, that might be, a certain kind of more idealized sex, there was, I, I or, or a certain type of sex you kind of only see, in porn, that, is maybe not as. Akin to real experience. I can say so many different things depending on my mood. Like the, if you interviewed <laughs> me another day, it could have different answers. Yeah. But I do remember times of being intimidated. Uh-huh. Like, wow, that was quite a performance. I don't think I have that in me right. to do that. Yeah. I wish I did. Uh-huh. And I wish I had the equipment to match. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. You know, some, some, some things I'm thinking about as we're talking is like, and I don't even know how to go about it, but... Um, without sounding like I'm trying to be a little bit self-important because there is so much joy and fun in what I've done Mm -hmm. for me. But I, I wish that I could convey verbally. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the, the sort of titillation factor and the curiosity factor, but I hope that the images go beyond that. Yeah. Uh, which I think they do. I mean, the main reason of the interest in them in the first place, I mean, from my standpoint anyways, is that they're, I mean, they completely transcend the subject matter. I mean, you look at them like you look at any other art. I mean, they're interesting images. And I think that um, it's maybe one of the most difficult things to deal with because you're dealing with such inherently dramatic subject matter. You know, it kind of reminds me of that Winogrand quote, which is, monkeys make the problem harder you know it's like when you have a white woman i mean 
I think it was in response to the photo of a white woman and an African-American man, and they're both holding monkeys. That situation is so charged to start off with, how do you make an interesting picture out of it? Like the picture needs to be greater than the event. So when you're dealing with... Psychosexual energy, the cultural element is there already. Right. And also just like the, almost like the the titillating element, the, you know, just people naked, people, uh, you know, good looking people naked. You know, how do you make a picture that's, that's more interesting than that? Because I think that the majority of people are almost very satisfied with just the good looking person. Something that Dwayne Michael said, and I think it was even in, in his portraits book, he has all kinds of interesting thoughts on portraiture. And one of the things he says is that, you know, when someone looks at a at a photo and they're and they say, "Oh, wow, that's a beautiful photo." What most people mean is, "Oh, this person is looks hot. <laughs> is hot or looks good in this photo, or they're they're well photographed." And that can be enough. That yeah, times, right. Yeah. Of course, that can be enough. Yeah. yeah, there is there is obviously a pleasure in that. But when you get into more, I guess I don't know, sophisticated or more interesting appreciation of images and of pictures, you kind of want to do something maybe a bit more than that. In your maybe in, yeah in your own work, I find it hard. I mean, I, maybe that's why I make pictures. I find it hard to talk about, and like, I want the the photographs to, to pull those ideas from people as they look, as, yeah. as it did me when I started to see those uncanny things happening in front of me. Right. Um. And try to relay some of that visual excitement and and emotional. Uh, curiosity about something that was taken for granted to be a certain thing in terms of like because that's how I went into it yeah as I was titillated that I got the job Mm -hmm. I couldn't wait to see people like good looking (laughs) great looking people have sex in front of me I was 25 Mm -hmm. maybe 26 so you know hormones were still they're still here but they were really there (laughs) (laughs) You were just telling me how you've had four big obsessions yes. in your life. Um, when I get into something, I, I carry it pretty far. I mean, when I was nine, I became really obsessed with the movie The Poseidon Adventure. The, the Poseidon Adventure? The original one with Shelley Winters and Stella Stevens and Ernest Borgnine and Gene Hackman. It's about an ocean liner that don't even think about the remake. Don't, it, it doesn't exist to me. <laughs> but it's an ocean liner that capsizes on New Year's Eve. And they're all dressed up in their finest attire, and it flips over. And it's quite an incredible scene. But there was something about, in an instant, everything changing mm-hmm. into like a surreal environment. And they're having to struggle their way like from, from party mode to survival mode like that. And all that glamour gets distressed and turned upside down uh-huh. so I mean we could talk days about that uh-huh. Joni Mitchell is another one Stevie Nicks Dark Shadows uh-huh. the television show the original again <laughs> it was a 1960s soap opera that my brother and I would watch with my mom uh-huh. I can remember being four and loving it uh-huh. um and I have a friend, I have the box set in there that you probably saw when we were in the living room. Um, I watch it every couple of days. 
sometimes sleep to it because I find it so comforting, but it was rerun in the 90s on the Sci-Fi Channel, and I hadn't seen it for 20-something years. Mm -hmm. And I realized how much that show influenced my, my photography. I'm not kidding. They were really imaginative in shooting in mirrors, shooting through glass objects onto the subjects. They were really adventurous. It's quite ambitious for like a daytime soap. Mm -hmm. um, it involved time travel, vampires, werewolves, witches, the occult. <laughs> My mom sent us to stay with my aunt, who was quite religious, and we were accustomed to getting to see our dark shadows, and she did not like it because there was all this occult, dark, black magic stuff. She wouldn't let us watch it. And we 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 rioted. We were like, we're going home. So she had to call my mom and get permission to let us watch it. J.D., <laughs> her husband, my uncle, I don't think they should be watching this. And probably we shouldn't, but hey, it, it really influenced me visually. I really think so. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I mean, they they had such a peculiar way of, of setting up their shots. Mm -hmm. And they used really long lenses so that the what was that, they would frame things in front of the camera and then shoot through to, to, their, to the subject. Mm. And... I wasn't aware that, as a kid, that that's what they're doing. Would you use long lenses? Uh, quite a bit, yeah. Really? What length? More so now. Uh, my favorite lens right now is a 70 to 200. 70 to 200. Yeah. Huh. But when you were doing the, the stuff on the, on the sets, the color work? I was really a, um, not a professional when I started as a professional. Yeah. Quite a, quite a bit I shot with a 50. Right. And that had a certain look to it. Right. And since then, I've just sort of gravitated to, to longer lenses that gives me, it's my comfort zone. Uh -huh. It's the brush I like to use. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice. Yeah. You mentioned also you have a pretty great Kenneth Anger story. Oh, man. Um, I met him, I was in the Santa Fe, Site Santa Fe Biennial, and he was going to be in it too. Mm -hmm. And so I had a copy of Hollywood Babylon that I had since mm -hmm. I was pretty young. And I brought that, and I brought a copy of Dreamland, and I wanted him to sign Hollywood Babylon. I was obsessed with the idea of Hollywood as a kid. Loved looking at Hollywood portraiture, the George Harrell portraits. Uh -huh. I was obsessed with that underbelly of Hollywood. I mean, it, that was before tabloid stuff was around. And when you're watching those movies as a kid, you don't imagine that these people had real lives. I didn't mm -hmm. that some of them were hooked on coke and some of them like and the murders and I was just like oh my god um, I don't know why I was drawn to that decadent side but I was yeah kind of makes sense when you see where I ended up in some ways uh -huh. but uh, he uh, we became friends and he would call me and I'd go see movies with him he didn't have a car uh -huh. so I'd pick him up We'd go to UCLA and watch, um, we watched Night of the Hunter. And then we watched the, the behind the scenes footage that um, Charles Lawton, cinematographer Stanley Cortez, had taped. Huh. And it was found in Elsa Lanchester, his wife's garage. Wow. So they pieced the, it was a really brilliant insider look at how that movie was done and just how genius the direction was. But um, he called me. And was super angry. At seven in the morning woke me up. 
was sort of giving me jabs about if I had any books of my work. And I'm like, yeah, I gave you one. He goes, no, I mean like real books on nice paper. Uh-huh. <laughs> so was, he was trying to get get to me. And I was like, I don't understand where this hostility is coming from. And he, he said, um, because you never called me and you made me feel like a shit. And he hung up on me. So I tried to call him back, never called, never answered. I was like, that's just weird. Uh-huh. So two more days, he calls me again. He says, I've been uh, gay bashed. Someone beat me up, came into my house, ransacked my house. Will you come over and photograph it? Uh-huh. By some weird coincidence, one of my friends who worked in porn needed to stay on my couch. This is after I quit working with him. And uh, I was really glad because after the hostile message, I was like, is he luring me over to his house to like, fucking kill me or something uh-huh. <laughs> we're talking about someone who's really involved in the occult and some dark shit uh-huh. and uh, so my friend went with me and sure enough his house looked like it had been ransacked his nose was bloody he had a bandage on his face but something felt staged about it and uh, so I documented it and at one point Kenneth Anger like passed out and fell on the floor uh-huh. and um my friend Chuck is so genius. He was, of all things, Gloria Swanson's assistant in the 80s in New York. Okay. So there's some weird, like, synchronicity going on here because it, it's so Kenneth Anger, right? Uh-huh. Like, someone who was the assistant to Gloria Swanson. Like, Chuck could be in the book somehow. Yeah. Hollywood Babylon. But uh, he falls. He passes out. My friend looks at me and goes, shoot it, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Like, he's given it to you. Right. Like, I'm so naive. I'm concerned. And, and my friend was on to it. He's like, this is a total performance for you. Shoot it. Right. So I've got voicemail messages of him calling me when I was on my way there. Yeah. Saying that I was blowing him off and calling me a Jew, which I have no problem <laughs> if I was, but I'm not. Uh-huh. All this crazy stuff. What happened after that? Well... I amassed the photographs and then he called me and gave me another message, another message about wanting eight by 10 glossies, <laughs> which he called them of, I mean, I am a huge fan. Uh-huh. Like I love a lot of his films. Yeah. But he, he's a very intense character. Yeah. And I actually slept with a knife by my bed. Like it got so under my skin, uh-huh. how creepy it was. It was like he did. He did to me what he intended to do. Uh-huh. He creeped me out. Right. Did you ever do anything with those pictures? Some of them were in a show in New York. Uh-huh. It was another body of work incorporated into it. Uh-huh. Um, I had heard that he had done that before with what? other people. Said that he had been robbed or beaten. Uh-huh. Um, I, 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 it's, it's a mystery. I mean, even to tell you that story, I'm trying to take the piss out of it because I was actually creeped out that he might have cursed me uh-huh. in some way. I ended up shooting him again. Uh-huh. Somebody, dazed and confused, called me and said, we want you to shoot Kenneth Anger. And I said, hey, I got to tell you, we have a history and I'm not sure he's even going to allow me to do it. Uh-huh. And they said, no, it's fine. So I show up. He's staying at the Gershwin now. He used to live in Echo Park when this incident happened. And I show up with my assistant. He acts like he's never met me before. Maybe he doesn't remember. It's all really creepy. How how long ago is it, had it been? Maybe a year. 
not, not a year long, later. Yeah, not long enough to completely forget uh-huh. in my mind. And you, you'd already you'd been friendly with him. You'd gone to movies with him. You'd this thing happens. You guys speak one more time. He asked for eight by ten glossies. That was a phone message. That was a phone message. And he he curses me out again, calls me a, a commercial minded bitch and all kinds of stuff. And and he's like, well, so call me. Uh huh. Well, I wasn't. I didn't want to call him because his his phone message was so hostile. Uh huh. How do you respond to that? Right. Like, I'll play it for you. It's like the, it's it's a raging rant to me, and then it's like, so here's my number. Call me. Right. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. So I show up. Yeah, yeah. And he has a brown paper bag with him at this hotel lobby. He says, "I want to be photographed with this," and he reaches in to pull it out, and I'm I'm ready to run. Like I don't know what's in this bag. Yeah. And it it's a. I call it the Malaysian devil monkey. I don't know if it was from Malaysia, but that's the vibe I got. Uh-huh. It, it's a demon. He okay. wants to be photographed with a demon. I'll show you the picture that it resulted. Okay. After I took it, I was like, he, that son of a bitch cursed me. Wow. Like he's holding a demon looking right into my lens, into right. my soul. Right. And I'm like, that, that can't be good. <laughs> <laughs> this is a crazy story. I mean, I told you I'm interested in dark shadows, and so I have an interest in the occult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some creepy stuff. So I think you draw. I mean, honestly, I think this is what. When I say I'm blessed, it's also a curse. Like the stuff that you're really fascinated with and interested in. Yeah. If you keep that in your head, you can manifest it. I know I sound like a new age freak. Yeah. But like reading Hollywood Babylon as a kid, coming out here, meeting him. Right. Working in porn, the underside of like the film industry, and looking at Hollywood glamour stuff. Now I'm shooting Oscar-winning actors and stuff. I mean, who? How do you manifest that? Right. How does it happen? Yeah. Um, I didn't. You know, I thought I was going to be a painter, but all the sort of childhood fantasies that I had is kind of what ended up happening in my life. Right. I'm not trying to sound self-important, but I do find it kind of magical sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we're sitting here in this like most beautiful garden in Silver Lake. The sun is setting, and uh, we're looking at the Hollywood sign. And this has been like such a pleasure. Agreed. Thanks so much for having me here. Thank you. Okay. That was my conversation with Jeff Burton that we had in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and it was edited by Crystal Duhame. Music in this episode by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magicarapodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magicarapodcast. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.